Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And one thing about uh, dignity of humanity, I think it's fair to say everybody in America is in hopes of a good life and freedom. Well, what does that mean? And what obstacles are put up against some sectors of our society having equal access to a better life and freedom. In 2011, Isabel Wilkerson published a book called The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's great migration. It was about Southern blacks leaving the oppression of the old Confederacy and the violence there, the direct overt violence in search of better lives and freedom in places like Chicago. But Did they find better lives and freedom, or did the influx and confinement to certain areas within the cities result in what our guest today calls spatialized blackness, whereby the powers that were found new and creative, the powers that be (laughs) were found, uh, they, they found new and creative ways less obvious than the blatantly violent Southern powers used to still very effectively keep black men down and under control. Subtitle of the book, Spatialized Blackness, is Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. And its author is our guest today, Rashad Shabazz. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a pleasure to be here, Bert. Thank you for having me. Well, sure. Over a quarter million African Americans migrated to Chicago between 1900 and 1940, part of the so-called Great Migration, in which the influx to Chicago was unsurpassed in any other northern city. From the start, those running the city literally and figuratively created a prison-like environment to contain these new uh, residents and citizens, African-Americans within the so-called Black Belt on the city's south side. Our guest, Rashad Shabazz, is associate professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Well, again, thanks for being with us. How did you come to write this book? When I was a graduate student, I was doing research on writers in prison, imprisoned intellectuals, and I was reading the literature of people like uh, Angela Y. Davis and Mumi Abu-Jamal and George Jackson in the U.S. context and uh, others in the South African context, uh, particularly the work of uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, Govan Mbeki, who's the, the son of the former president. And one of the things I discovered in their writing is that they would write about the geographic 
and spatial connections between the way some black communities functioned, both in the U.S. and the South African context, and the way prisons and jails function. Oh. And I thought it was really interesting, and I, I thought they were being metaphorical. So, you know, one of the things we as researchers do is we, we research these things, we find out. And what I discovered is that the connections were well beyond metaphor, that they were very material. So I began to look at what this might mean within the U.S. context, particularly my hometown of Chicago and the South Side, which, you know, for a period of time had the largest, one of the largest uh, black populations north of the Mason-Dixon line. So I began to look at, you know, what it was like for black people to move up into the, the north, into Chicago in the Black Belt, and how did these forms of spatialized blackness or containment and surveillance manifest themselves mm. in their everyday geography? And so the book emerged uh, from those questions. Wow, that's, that's a lot of questions and, and quite uh, a list of uh, people who went before and, and, and spoke about such things writing from prison. Of course, I thought about uh, one of... I think the greatest Americans ever, Malcolm X, who certainly did a lot. Uh, but uh, you know, from the from the context of the Jim Crow South, in which African Americans had to live under laws very specifically designed to deny any freedom and equality and to uh, reduce any sense of masculinity, they came to Chicago looking for a better life and some sense of freedom. What did they expect or hope to find? And what did they really find? Well, what they hoped to find was full citizenship. The the South in the years after the Civil War, uh, particularly during the Reconstruction period in the 1880s and 90s, saw the rise of a violent and repressive form of white supremacy. And so the black Southerners were caught between economic immobility, forms of containment, hostility, violence. Uh, they were politically neutered. So they had to flee the South, and the North was experiencing a rapid economic and uh, population transformation. There was lots of migration from Europe. There was also migration from Latin America. And so black people began to to come up. And, and the, one of the main reasons for this push factor, obviously, is those things I mentioned, the terror uh, and the, the racism of the South. But there was also pull factors like economic mobility. Mm -hmm. the, South, the North was going through World War I. And many men, particularly white men, left um, northern, northern industrial cities to go fight in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so there was this labor void. Uh -huh. And black people were pulled up to work in the in those industries, so right there was this push factor of you know racism and terror, and this pull factor of economic mobility. Mm -hmm. There was also another mm -hmm. pull factor of the hope of full citizenship. So when black people left the South and moved to the North, those were the things that they were hoping to get: you know, better housing, better education for their children, the right to vote, fleeing terror. And what they found was they found this you know entirely new landscape, right where uh, it was uh, it was fast paced. It was densely packed. Mm. The the culture functioned differently. The language was different. The foods there were all these different things, right? And it was it was in in very many ways 
fundamentally different from the kinds of experiences that they that black people had in the south mm-hmm. uh, but but very early on as black people began to move up they were confronted with forms of racism and what i do in the book is i try to identify those forms of racism and how they manifest geographically you know geography is a really important aspect to the practice of racism because one of the things that racism does is it creates partitions between people Uh, in terms of where they can live, the Mm. buses they can travel on, the schools that they can attend, the pools that they can attend, you know, so on and so forth. You know, racism is something that's deeply rooted in geography. It's very much written onto the landscape. So in, in writing the book, I tried to identify how those things function. And what I discovered is that as black people were moving up, they were not given the opportunity to live where they wanted to live. 85% of, of Chicago's housing market was governed by something called restrictive covenants. And restrictive covenants were um, legally binding documents within the contract and the deed of homes that said, what you can and can't do. You know, you can't paint your house purple, you can't turn Mm -hmm. it into a saloon. But it also said things like, you know, no Jews, no Mexicans, no Chinese, no blacks specifically. And the only part of the city that allowed for blacks to live in them, uh, live in that neighborhood, Mm -hmm. was the Black Belt, which which was near the downtown area, and it's actually near a a vice district called the Levy. And that was the only Mm -hmm. place where black people could live. And so as they began to move up, they began to live in the Black Belt because there was no restrictions on their mobility here. And so those were one of some of the first ways that they began to experience this form of geographic racism. And it's it's how, you know, blackness was spatialized or geographically located within the context of the city kept under control. <laughs> yeah. Kind, kind of walls around it. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today, Rashad Shabazz, who's a very interesting new book, Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. And, and I have to wonder, the bank's clearly had this uh, restrictive covenants, the redlining practice, and you know, defining specific areas within Chicago, as you mentioned, Rashad, it reminds me. H. L. Mencken uh, observed: never ascribe evil intent where mere incompetence is the likely culprit. Could the ghettoization of blacks in Chicago have been merely a result of incompetence at a high level, or must it have been intentional? It was very intentional. Uh, as as black people were released from the chains of slavery in the South, there were a number of academic and popular discussions, or you know what we call in the academy discourses, that emerged about them. And there were two major ones: is that uh, one that black people were cr- were prone to criminality. You know that they were criminals by nature. Right. Uh, and the, the second one was that they were, um, that they were sexually violent, you know, particularly black men. So in the, in the aftermath of the Civil War, at the dawn of Reconstruction, uh, at the end of Reconstruction, sorry, in the 1880s and 90s, you have these two discourses that, black, you know, black people are criminally, criminally uh, prone to criminality right, right. and that they are sexually violent. And that sexual violence 
would be used as a form of revenge on whites, particularly white women from black men, right? So you have these two discourses, right? Scholars wrote books about it. It appeared in, you know, newspapers and magazines. It was, you know, it was a bit of a popular discourse. And so as black people began to move out of the South into the North, those discourses followed them. And, you know, scholars wrote that Northern cities have to get prepared for the migration of black people, because what's going to happen is that, you know, this criminality, this sexual violence is going to move up into the cities, and that white residents must close black people off. It must create a barrier between whites and blacks to protect themselves, right? So, so it wasn't, it was by no means yeah. uh, a mistake <laughs> or, you know, a, a a form of incompetence. It was very strategic, and it was clear. And this is how, you know, the the the, the black geographies, the black spaces uh-huh. that exist right now in cities oh, yeah. all over the country, you know, Oakland, California, Los Angeles, Chicago, Everywhere. New York, Boston, Detroit, yeah. they were formed in the early 20th century, and they were formed mm-hmm. in part because of these claims about you know, what it would mean for black people to live within the same geographic space as whites. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, it, uh, and, you know, I, I have to wonder, there, these, these, you know, uh, images, these uh, old, old beliefs, as you described about, uh, you know, genetically inclined toward criminality and sexual violence and things, I, I wonder about any kind of connection between the ghettoization, you know, the spatialized blackness, and gangs. I mean, let's, you know, the, the image of black gangs is very, very scary to a lot of white people, and probably a lot of white people think, as you said, you know, but, but in what way do you think the, this specific intentional ghettoization may have uh, perhaps, I don't know, intentionally or just unintentionally maybe contributed to the, to the creation of, of gangs, perhaps psychologically uh, within the, uh, you know, imprisoned community? The geographic containment of black people in northern cities, particularly in Chicago, gave rise to black gangs. And, you know, we know from looking at places around the world, you know, South America, South Africa, Russia, that whenever you contain, when you, whenever you have poor people that are spatially isolated or contained within a particular geography, that gangs emerge as a response to them, right? And they emerge for a number of reasons. You know, they, they emerge as a way um, to create forms of mobility. They emerge as a way to articulate a form of control they 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 do various things right you know they happen in they happen in prisons they happen Absolutely. in uh in official you know you know state run prisons they happen in in you know unofficial prisonized landscapes you know. so so gangs emerged as a result of the creation of uh the spatialization of blackness in chicago and they really began around you know you know around the, the second world war it was small um but nevertheless, they began there. They really explode in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And, and the reason that they really began to explode is at that time is that, you know, so we, we've, we've already, by this time, we have ended, or by that time, uh, 
the first wave of the black migration has ended, that period between the early 20th century and the, the end of the Second World War, where you had you know, several hundred thousand people moving into Chicago, and they moved into the black belt, which was overrun with people. And we began, and black people began to experience um, forms of economic immobility uh-huh. where they couldn't move out of the community because of housing restrictions and because of growing poverty, because they were kept out of some of the major industry that uh, many Chicagoans worked in, particularly, particularly men. You know, the, the unions, the industry, they kept, they kept black men out. So this had negative effects not only on black men, but the entire community because they, they were important labor uh, and economic source. So, you know, and, and by the 1960s, right, we began to see the waning of the post-war economy, you know, that, that form of economic mobility that emerges right after the Second World War that creates the suburbanization of the United States where whites leave the cities and they move out to the suburbs and you know it creates all of um, all of these commodities cars homes so on and so forth right you know that gives rise to this sort of um, new mode of economic mobility primarily for whites and so you know blacks were effectively abandoned and trapped within the city because of restrictions on housing and because of economic immobility so so gangs emerge in many in many ways, as a response to this, to create a form of mobility, to create a form of authority, mm-hmm. to create forms of safety for them in these communities that were becoming unstable. So there is a direct correlation between the containment and isolation of black people in these northern cities, particularly Chicago uh, and gangs. And, and this is a very much a parallel story with Los Angeles, you know, very much the same thing. You know, black people began to move to Los Angeles mm. at the end of the Second World War, you know, early 1950s and 60s. Black gangs, Latino gangs began to explode in the mid to late 1960s as a result of economic immobility, um, instability, and so on. Almost identical stories. Yeah, mobility and lack thereof. And you talked uh, a couple times, referenced and subtitled of the book, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. Masculinity in American culture, uh, oftentimes, you know, it, it, the way to kind of measure it, I guess, is holding a job and supporting a family. But in subcultures where those typical manifestations of manhood are obstructed, what what kinds of things do we see in their places? Sounds like gangs are one of those. Yeah, the the dominant notion of masculinity, as you said, is holding a job, um, having physical mobility, being able to move around. You know, the sort of dominant notion of of uh, one of the dominant notions of Western manhood, particularly white Western manhood, is about you know exploration and you know moving around yes. and, and being able to see different parts of. Uh, your town, your city, your state, the globe, you know, so on. Uh, and so what we have with, with, with black men uh, and, and um, other working men of color, poor and working class men of color, is that these notions of masculinity are held up as, as archetypes, right? You know, uh, access sure. to institutions, you know, mobility, so on and so forth. And these men don't have access to them, right? But, but they still 
are schooled in what one scholar calls bell hooks, what she calls, you know, schooled in the patriarchal logic. And what, mm. and what she means mm-hmm. by that is that they're, they are still taught to be these kind of right. patriarchal men who are supposed to run the family, who are supposed to uh, provide economic and physical security mm-hmm. for the family, that are supposed to have access to institutions, that are supposed to be able to utilize the vote, that are supposed to be mobile. You know, they're still schooled in that. Yes. So they're, they're confronted uh, with this tension between what they're supposed to be as men and the reality of their situation as black men. Mm. And so what happens is that there is there is alternative forms of masculinity that emerge mm-hmm. that attempt to um, counter those dominant narratives. And one of those one of those counters is is toughness. Right? Toughness in the sense of um, being physically and emotionally tough. And that was used, that was one of the mechanisms that was used as a way to counter these dominant forms of masculinity that these black men did not have access to. Mm -hmm. And this had negative implications for black men and for black women, right? It created forms of tension between black men that, that at times might result in forms of violence uh, that that also spilled over to black women and to black children right and oh, and and as you pointed out gangs become a part of this right because gangs enable for forms of physical mobility walking around the community and you know uh-huh. feeling safe right. they enable forms of economic mobility you know some of these gangs were involved in you know, gambling or various kinds of illegal trade, right? So it was it was a way to supplement um, economic mobility that was denied within the context of legitimate institutions like being able to you know work in the steel mill, join the union, and so on and so forth, right? So these these alternative forms of masculinity emerge as a result of these forms of containment and immobilization that were structurally produced that emerge out of these discourses of, you know, black people are going to ruin the city, mm-hmm. so they, they have to be contained and controlled and so on and so forth, right? Mm. And so, you know, what, what I do in the book is I, is I really illustrate that gender and race and identity broadly are deeply informed by geography. You know, we as humans are, we are geographic subjects, and what that means is that the places that we uh-huh. inhabit they inform us. They inform our yes. sense of personal style. They shape the foods we eat. They inform our sexualities. They inform our racial identity. And they also inform our sense of gender performance. And what, what I began to, to see as I was doing this research is that those forms of containment had adverse effects on black women in various ways, but I wanted to focus on, on black men because I am one and I'm trying to also think about you know, gender and performance from the perspective of masculinity. What I began to see is that those forms of containment began to give rise to forms of masculinity that were, in some cases, deeply problematic for black men and black women and black children, and that there was this relationship between the construction of those contained places 
and the pre- performance of black masculinities. Contained places. Hmm. Prisons. Sounds like that's what it is. That's what it is. Spatialized blackness here. And I, I have to say, I'm reminded, frankly, of of Gaza, also known as the Gaza Strip, the very small, very crowded Palestinian area to the east of the or to the west of the uh, state of Israel. That's often been called the world's largest open air prison. Yes. I, did, yes. I can't help but see a lot of similarities between the ghettoized black belt of Chicago and Gaza. Your thoughts on that? That That is a, I think it's a great comparison. When I was doing the research as a graduate student and, and also as a faculty member, I was reading about um, Palestine and uh, I, was, I was reading about the architecture of confinement uh, that, that, informed the the construction of that place right and mm-hmm. and I also read too you know the the world's largest open air prison and so you you begin to see when you look at the Palestinian territories you know contained they're bracketed mobility in and out is strictly controlled oh, yeah. by the state of Israel oh, there's an and there's an architecture of confinement there's a there's a famous uh, architect really brilliant architect uh, A.L. Weissman who writes about how the state of Israel creates a an architecture of confinement, and then he begins to write about the the consequences of that right poverty, instability, and that these two things in particular give rise to forms of opposition to the state of Israel right yeah. so when you are impoverished and you are contained and you are politically neutered yes. Violence becomes one way to respond to that, right? And it, and it becomes a sensible way of responding to that because, you know, protest doesn't work, right. talking doesn't work, and you are effectively contained and isolated. So, you know, we begin to see that there's this tension, right, that, that erupts into forms of violence between the Palestinians and the state of Israel, right? right? And so spatializing blackness is in many ways an attempt to kind of get at those questions that A.O. Weissman is, is writing about and trying to understand, like, how does this geography of containment, you know, how does the geography of the occupation impact the, the everyday lived experience of Palestinians? Now, he doesn't write about it in terms of racial identity and gender performance, but nevertheless, he's really understanding that there is something to be said about how the Palestinian territories function and the ways that people's lives are organized within that and and the consequences that produces for people within the Palestinian territories and those within the state of Israel, right? So I was very much um, attentive to and thinking about uh, Palestine as as I was writing the book. Oh, I I can imagine. And, you know, once again, there's so many uh, uh, people who are not Palestinians, who are not black, who somehow accept this bad behavior uh, as being, you know, occurring prior to the confinement. And it seems to me it's you can specify, probably quantify how it's it's not it didn't exist before that it is a logical result of being confined being kept down i mean heck there's even different highways that palestinians can use one road and uh members of, you know jewish members of the state of israel can use another 
railroad. I mean, what the heck do you expect? <laughs> you know, there's got to be some anger from that. And yeah, and that and that anger is really understood. I mean, I the the way that the anger is is articulated throughout some aspects of the media is that Palestinians are just violent. Right, right. That that um, uh, that various groups are just promoting violence, and we have to understand that a the Palestinians are are occupied, and b they are contained. Yeah. You know, they cannot go anywhere freely. They cannot move. You know, they're locked within very specific borders. So, so what happens? to any kind of human being or animal yeah, that's yeah. contained. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, this is, you know, one of the things that uh, scholars have been writing about, and not just scholars, is that, you know, the people have been questioning zoos. Yes. And asking, like, should we keep animals in these pens? And, and sure, they're not treated like prisoners, but yeah, there's a consequence to holding animals and human beings in cages, right? There's a profound consequence. And if we look at just human beings, you know, in, in, in the United States, we have about 2.3 million people incarcerated. More than half of them are black. The overwhelming majority of them are poor. Yes. And every year, those that are released, 50% of them go back. So we have this, we have this monumentally expensive political project that fails 50% of the time, in large part because when people are incarcerated, they experience forms of trauma, isolation from their friends and family, violence within the context of the institution, yes. containment. You know, there's all of these forms of trauma that people who are incarcerated are confronted with. And then we expect them to come back into the broader society and function adequately. I mean, that's, that's, that's nonsense, that's right? They, they've dealt with years of trauma. Yeah. And so, obviously, they're going to go back in for a number of reasons, right? Can't get a job, you know, denied access to education, denied access to public housing. And so those things right there are going to thrust people right back in to that institution, right? Again, 50% of the people who go in... And get out and get released either through probation or parole at the end of their sentence. Come back, and we're spending billions and billions of dollars on this institution, both at the state and at the federal level, right? And so, you know, you know, my point in in making that connection is that is that if we look at Gaza, yeah. if we look at the South Side of Chicago, if we look at state and federal prisons, it's obvious that containing human beings, whether it be in cells or open-air prison, mm -hmm. does not work. It has adverse effects on their physical health, their emotional health, their notions of gender performance, their economic mobility, right? It has, you know, and, and so what, what, I, what the book is attempting to do is to really illustrate that we have to fundamentally not only rethink our reliance on jails and prisons, but we also have to really be concerned with the fact that the overwhelming majority of the people that are feeding into our jails and prisons are coming from communities that have been isolated and contained, and they have been uh, they have been impoverished. Right? There is a there is a link nationally between 
the places that poor yes. and working class people and particularly people of color live and our prison system. Right. It, it, just, just for example, sure. the state of Illinois releases somewhere around 20 to 30,000 prisoners uh, a year. 60% of them go to the, to the uh, city of Chicago. The majority of those that are released of that 60%, they come from a handful of zip codes on the south and west side, which is where the majority of the mm-hmm. state's black population live. So effectively, you have the black population in Chicago on the west and south sides that is feeding the state prison. The same is said of New York state. The same is the case in California and in Texas and in Florida and in Atlanta and on and on. Yeah. Right. So, so what is it about these places? Well, the discourse has been that their path, you know, has been about pathology. They're violent by nature, you know, so on and so forth. But if you begin to look closer, you see that these communities are deeply impoverished. They have been confronted uh, with forms of isolation for decades and that they are also heavily policed, heavily policed, right? And this is really important when we begin to think about that over the last 40, almost 50 years, that one of the major, major things that have moved people into jails and prisons across the country has been the war on drugs, Mm -hmm. drug use, selling, so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we know from, from statistics, right, that... Whites use drugs, particularly young whites use drugs, at a far higher rate than blacks or Latinos or Asian Americans. But why do they not face mass incarceration? Because their communities aren't policed in the way that black and Latino communities are policed, right? Mm -hmm. They use more drugs, they have access to better kinds of drugs, but they're not policed in the same way. I don't know if you saw um, the, the news report, but there was a giant bust in... Charleston, South Carolina, and it was a group of mostly young white men, very privileged young white men, that were running a drug operation that was, you know, feeding the um, the university population, right? And it it quote unquote hid in plain sight for years. Why? Because it's young white men who are not seen as a threat, not seen right. as drug dealers, not seen as violent. But they were running drugs into that town and into that university for years, right? And they did it, they did it pretty much in the open. Mm. So what we begin to see is that, you know, this, this belief that there's, you know, something inherently uh, criminal and problematic about black people and that they need to be contained and policed. And, you know, with whites, uh, it's just, it's okay. You know, it's, there's no policing. There's no belief that they're inherently criminal, that there's no, there's no sense that they, they need to be contained or isolated, right? And, and it produces, you know, drastic consequences for, for black people and for poor and working class people oh, that, that many whites are able to evade because of because of their whiteness yeah. and the economic position and because of where they are located. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully we could make some progress against this. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, it certainly doesn't appear to be progress moving from, you know, the Jim Crow South, where it's, you know, they used simple violence and terror, and now there's uh, specific ghettos that people are put in to keep people caged up. 
The book is Spatialized Blackness, Architecture of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. Our guest today is Rashad Shabazz, the author of that book. And, you know, you think about uh, some of the the history. I mean, I I just love history because unless you look at history and understand it, you can't really understand where we are today. And certainly throughout much of the 19th and 20th century history, science was employed to provide arguments, to justify discrimination. White social scientists a century ago were showing research that defended the racially motivated policing that uh, prevails in the, in the black belt. What were some of their findings that, that may have been used? And uh, I can't help but think that the, the people who funded the research wanted this particular outcome. Well, what we begin to see, Bert, is that, so, you know, slavery ends, you know, and, and it's, this, this, is an important, um, this is an important aspect of the story. Before the end of slavery, you know, black people were seen as docile and um, sexually inept, right? And that was one of the justifications for slavery, you know, these, these docile silly people need white men to care for them so that they didn't ruin themselves effectively. And that was one of the major justifications for slavery. You know, the whole, you know, discourse of the white man's burden that Mm -hmm, functions throughout mm -hmm. colonialism and the various colonies and then slavery. Right, you know, the happy darky notion. At the end of slavery and the creation of Reconstruction, which was about, you know, putting the South back together physically. You know, it had been destroyed because of the Civil War. The South didn't have any institutions, no public schools, no, um, no, 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 really no public agencies because the slaveocracy ran everything in the South. You know, there was no, there was really no kind of uh, public in the South because the, the, the slave, the slave state was, was the, the, the mechanism that sort of, you know, turned the wheels of the South, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it was about, you know, installing institutions like public education and public works and so on and so forth, right? And, th- and that, was, that was this moment, you know, this really important moment where things could have really gone differently because black people began to work in the South, they began to run for Congress, they were elected to public, public office, right? but, you know, whites felt threatened. And, you know, I hope your listeners are, are, are thinking about that moment in Reconstruction and this moment right now with the mm-hmm. rise of Trump uh, and the Brexit and this, you know, the way in which you know working class whites are feeling threatened, right? Yeah. You know, working class whites were feeling threatened. You know, they thought black people were going to, you know, quote unquote, take over, yes. right? Yes. And 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 this also had a, a deep sexual component because some of that oh, was about, yeah. you know, not only take over in terms of political and economic mobility, but also. Mm-hmm sexual mobility, and particularly in terms of white women, right? Oh, yeah. There was this fear, this anxiety, and this is where we see the rise of white supremacy, the rise of the Klan, the rise of lynching, you know, and it was a way to take back the South, you know, does that sound familiar? No, yeah. Take back the South from the onslaught of, you know, these newly freed 12 million black people, right, okay. that were, who were simply just working and trying to feed their families and trying to contribute to the creation of a new society that was birth through the Civil War and through the abolition of slavery, right? I mean, it's, it's the sort of natural progression, right? Yeah. 
but you know southern whites particularly you know the the the, the southern white working class as well as the former slaveocracy they were like oh no we can't have this right we have to take back you know our region and white supremacy was a mechanism to do in that and so there's the violence there was the, the legal challenges the black codes all of these things happened but there was also scholars played an important role all these discourses so what we began to see is that these scholars that you know 30 years before, you know, said that, you know, black people were inept and, and incapable of doing anything. Now, all of a sudden, they They're saw them as predators, <laughs> cold-calculating predators that were going to, you know, permit, uh, uh, produce crime and to, um, and to create sexual violence, yes. right? You yes. know, rape white women. This notion of the, 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 the myth of the black rapist, you know, emerges uh, at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, so... So, so those scholars were really important, and, and particularly social scientists, because yes. you know there was something um, there, was, there was something really powerful about social scientists. You know, using statistical analysis uh-huh, uh-huh. to produce uh, an understanding of who these people were mm-hmm. and what they were capable of doing. So, you know, you begin to see the rise of this in the late 19th and early 20th century, and a lot of this literature really caught on, right? It, they were traveling across the country, they were speaking, they were selling all these books, and all of these ideas about race began to filter out into the broader white sure. world, right? Particularly the North and the West, right? In, in, in ways that necessarily hadn't been 30 years before, because it was, it was, you know, black people, there weren't as many black people and other people of color, and so all of these ideas began to circulate with the mobility and the migration of black people as they were leaving the South and going into the North, right? So, the, so these ideas were central, right? And it's also, Bert, another way to really understand the importance of what people in universities do, hmm. right? You know, universities are idea factories, right? We create numerous ideas that have impacts on our broader world. You know, me being on this radio program is, is, is an example of that. You know, I'm, you I'm putting this idea right? out into the world. Yeah. So these scholars began to put these ideas out into the world, and people were listening. Sure. Right? And they were moved, and they were frightened. So not only was the South trying to take back the region, but oh, yeah. the North was also trying to protect themselves from the, the impending onslaught of black people moving into the cities. And we see this in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in Detroit, in New York, you know, and, and various other cities, right, that they had to be contained, that they had to be isolated. And Chicago is a, a, a really powerful case study because the, the numbers of black people that moved up was large, the forms of containment were very strategic and organized, and the consequences that they produced uh, for generations going forward, um, were, were were really powerful. You know, you yeah, could you could see that without the creation of the black belt and these discourses about black criminality and the use of the black belt as a place to police, right? You don't have mass incarceration. Right? You just you just don't have it in that in that way. You don't have the kind of racially organized and geographically. Uh, uh, segregated forms of policing that produce 
the vast inequalities that we see today regarding um, uh, in, regarding mass incarceration. Yeah. So those ideas by those scholars in the early 20th century, right, late 19th and early yeah. 20th century, right, had had tremendous impact. Right, they put they put these notions of protection and containment into a lot of northern whites' heads, and cities responded mm-hmm. by effectively containing or spatializing blackness. And as the influx of Europeans and Southern blacks continued between the wars, between the First World War and the Second, Chicago found itself in need of additional housing. And to that end, a particular form of housing evolved, which you describe, the kitchenette. Uh, Tell us about that kind of dwelling, its physical space, as well as how families operated in these kitchenettes. Kitchenettes emerged around the 1920s, you know, mid-1920s in Chicago. And they were also uh, used in, in New York City and in Philadelphia to a smaller degree. Uh, Chicago had lots of them, particularly in the Black Belt. The main reason that they functioned in the Black Belt is because there were too many people and not enough housing. Right. You know, there were so many people coming up. You know, at, at one point in time, something like 10,000 a month were coming up. So kitchenettes were the old mansions and apartments that were left over by whites that moved further south or north, right? And those, that housing wasn't governed by restrictive covenants so black people could move in them. And basically what happened is that as more black people began to move in, those apartments and old mansions were cut up to accommodate or to, I should say, uh, to shove in more people. <laughs> so basically uh, a kitchenette was a, a, a a two-bedroom apartment that, under normal circumstance, might um, house somewhere between you know three to four people comfortably. Uh, a kitchenette would accommodate three families. One family would live in one bedroom, another family would live in another bedroom, and mm. another family would live in the dining room. And they would call kitchenettes because they had a kitchenette set, which was basically a hot uh. plate and a small ice box. And so you would have, you know, three or four beds in a room and everyone slept together. And so in a, in a, in, in a two-bedroom apartment, instead of having four people, you might have anywhere between, you know, 12 and 16. And the kitchenettes were awful. They were overrun. They had peeling paint. They had exposed wiring that caused numerous fires mm. and killed... Uh, several uh, families, uh, they, they were infested with rats, uh, they had bad air quality, they, they didn't receive much sunlight, they had rickety stairs. I mean, they were, they were awful. Right? And black Chicagoans were forced to live in them for about the mid-1920s until the early to mid-1950s. And what happened is that the Eisenhower administration decides that it's got to do something with slum tenements in cities like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia. So two major housing acts were Mm -hmm. passed, Mm -hmm. and these housing acts created post-war public housing in cities all over the country. You know, New York and Chicago are central in this. This housing creates the rise of high-rise public housing. Yes. And what happens is that black people 
are now able to leave these awful, awful tenements, these awful kitchenettes, and move into this new public housing, right? It was modern, it was clean, it was affordable. And so my grandparents were eager to move into them. You know, they, they were able to move into uh, Stateway Garden, and they, they were able to move in in the late 1950s. There was a period where project housing was paradise. Mm-hmm. Children everywhere, great facilities, affordable rent, and it was, you know, it was new and modern. Well, but there were two problems here. One right. is that all of the project housing was built only in black communities. Yes. Right? So in Chicago, the post-war housing projects particularly the Robert Taylor housing projects, which mm-hmm. were some of the largest in the world for a period of time, as well as Stateway Garden, were built only in the Black Belt. Right? Whites violently refused the movement of project housing into white communities. Right? They protested, oh, yeah. they fought, they threw bricks and bottles, and so you know, that, that didn't happen. Also, you know, the, the, the political establishment was not invested in in any kind of physical integration, you know, because of all these discourses about criminality and sexual violence, so on and so forth. So they were only built in black communities. And what that meant is that when black communities began to face forms of instability that were created in large part through the deindustrialization of the economy, that threw tens of thousands of people out of work, when instability emerged from poverty, those projects became deeply troubled places to live. Right, because that's one of the things that poverty does. It creates instability. So rather than grapple with the instability that was created in those projects with things like education and job training and, and other productive mechanisms, what the Chicago Housing Authority did, and the Chicago Housing Authority is the mechanism that runs these state homes, right, that's, that's funded by federal dollars. What the Chicago Housing Authority did with the approval of the federal government was to contain the instability. And they contained the instability with things like surveillance cameras mm. and uh, bulletproof glass and turnstiles and identification, uh, forms of identification that residents had to wear uh, and cages that were put over the buildings and police. Right? So effectively, wow. the Robert Taylor housing projects gets prisonized. Right? Yes. It gets turned into a prison through these sort of security and architectural formats, right? and it becomes a sort of contained, isolated place. Mm-hmm. And so we began to see, again, the extension of these forms of containment and isolation uh, and, and incapacitation being articulated on the geographies that black people live in, right? So we see, you know, black people moving out of these contained, isolated, very small kitchenettes in the mid-1950s and into these housing projects that were great for a time. And then the post-war economy falls off, and then forms of containment are brought in to to grapple with the instability. I will uh, admit that in the late 1970s, I, I had a job servicing tax shelters known as Articles 8, Section 221's public housing for investors. I I worked for the investors. It became clear to me at the time that probably the biggest problem with these large inner-city housing projects was the people who lived in them had no say. 
they were frozen out of decision-making about decisions which affected them on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the people, you know, people who lived in Robert Taylor housing projects, they couldn't do things like, you know, control their heat or, you know, have any real say-so over the daily functions of the project. You know, they were just, you know, they were sort of residents and there was another mechanism the Chicago Housing Authority that ran the day-to-day right. operations, right? right? And and you know that that's you know it's paternalistic, yeah. and and people want some kind of say so over yeah, the communities that they yeah, inhabit. Absolutely, just have that sense and, of. And place. So you know we we begin to see this. Uh, this becomes a sort of you know a, a strategy of of um, housing projects, right? Yes. To you know to be paternalistic and to control everything that's happening mm-hmm. in those housing projects and the people who live there, you know, don't have um, any real right. control over the day-to-day operations of the project. Yeah, and I kind of think democracy is a good thing <laughs> in general. This show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and the book is called Spatializing Blackness. You're given lots of examples of spatialized blackness, the subtitle Architectures of Confinement and Black Mac- Masculinity in Chicago. Our guest is author uh, Rashad Shabazz. And uh, one of the uh, attributes that, uh, that, that Americans believe is there for everyone equally is mobility, the freedom and ability to move around or at least to get to and from jobs. When white Americans think about racial discrimination and oppression, my guess is the subject of public transportation rarely, if ever, comes into consciousness. And you write that, I mean, you talked about the Chicago Housing Authority, well, there's also the Chicago Transit Authority, uh, which was cut off. The access was cut off in the 1950s. How did that happen? And what role does public transportation play in, the, in feeding the subtle but real incarceration of uh, black Americans? So the, the transportation agency in Chicago, they began to organize themselves to reflect the racial geography of the city. And what I mean by that is that as whites moved farther south and Blacks lived near the inner core of the city along that State Street South Side corridor, and then whites lived south and then farther west. And, and, and we begin to see, again, the rise of the post-war economy that's creating cars for everybody. You know? So transportation, public transportation, uh, gets undermined. And that, that undermining had significant um, negative impact for, for blacks. So basically, the bus service wasn't going into white neighborhoods, right? especially at certain times. Right? Mm-hmm. Black people had to walk or find some kind of personal public transportation to be able to move around, right? because the, the bus service was segregated. It didn't go into white communities or it stopped at a certain time, and that effectively you know, kept black people within a very particular orbit right, where they didn't go very far, and they couldn't go very far unless they had a car, whereas whites had access to cars because they had access to jobs. Right? And so the Dan Ryan Expressway gets created at the same time that housing projects are being built on the south side. And the Dan Ryan is a major artery that takes people from the south, from farther, the farther south side in the south suburbs into downtown, right, mm-hmm. in, the, in the near downtown area, where the majority of the jobs were located, both professional and industrial. So, you know, whites were driving back and forth, and they weren't using 
the bus anymore, whereas blacks needed the bus, but bus service was being cut mm. so that they couldn't move in and out of the city. And right, so this, you know, and we see this reflected in various cities all over the nation, and, and even today, you know, um, the, the geography department at the, uh, the University of California, Los Angeles uh, University at UCLA did a study about, you know, race and transportation, and they discovered that, you know, blacks and Latinos were not able to get to certain parts of Los Angeles because bus service was closed off either completely or at a certain time. Yeah. Right? I mean, and we see this also here in in uh, the Valley in Phoenix. Right? You know, Phoenix has a has a uh, large uh, Latino um, and, a, and a growing black population. Scottsdale, which is a wealthy suburb that is largely white, has restricted bus service. It's very difficult to get to Scottsdale via bus, particularly after five o'clock. And we know that you know people yeah. are moving around after five o'clock. They're going yeah. to pick up their children, or they're going to dinner, or they're going to school, or another job, or what have you. So Scottsdale, you know, because it's mostly white and upper middle class, you know, people have cars so they can drive in and out of the city. But if you don't have a car, you can't get there. Yeah. So, so you know, we these are these are you know state sanctioned. Yes. forms of Specialized racist containment yep. that reflect the the geographic order of the city and it maintains those various kinds of um, racialized yep. forms of containment right uh, yeah, that you know whites are here latinos are here uh-huh. whites are here asian americans are here and bus routes and train routes you know don't move people um, um don't move people along, don't move people through the city in effective ways, right? You know, we, we see a city like New York City, which actually I just got back from New York yesterday. The, the subway system takes you wherever you want to go. Yeah. You know, you can go anywhere in, in New York City for $2.50, right? You could be in Queens, and you can go uptown to Harlem, or you can be uptown in Harlem, oh, and you can go down to the Lower East Side for, for $2.50. And that creates this interesting kind of cross-pollination. Mm. Now, New York has its own history of segregation. Let's, let's be clear here. <laughs> but what you do see in New York is that people of color and whites are, you know, they move around the city in, in, in a very different way than, than you know, blacks and Latinos in cities like Chicago and Los Angeles because they don't have this same kind of public transit system that moves masses of people everywhere. They have bus systems, and these bus systems oftentimes reinscribe the forms of, of um, racial order mm. that's embedded in geography. Ah, in geography. Well, we've run out of time. Fascinating subject, fascinating discussion here. The book is Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. Our guest has been author Rashad Shabazz. Lots more to talk about. Pick up the book for yourself. Thank you so much for uh, being with us on and doing your stuff to keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. You got my pride hanging out of my bed. You mess with my life, so I bought my lid. Children, and you're screaming at my wife and get off of my bed.
you want.